Let's pray for a moment. Father, we want to thank you. We, we pray, Father, as junior church starts. Father, I want to pray that these children, young people would encounter you in a real and living way. Pray for Jocelyn as she leads it through today uh, and for Mike and Maureen. Father, pray for that team that they would know your blessing. And we ask that the children wouldn't just hear the stories, but that they would touch the God who is behind them. So Lord, we pray, bless them. Father, bless us today. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, we finished our three vision Sundays, and I had intended to continue with our Sermon on the Mount series, but I just felt God speak to me to just share something about change. And so uh, I apologize again because I know last week was a lot longer than it normally is, and this week hopefully will not be, it'll be shorter. Um, but last week was very difficult to split into two. Uh, and, and out of that, I just want to focus for a moment on something about how we move forward. And by how, I'm not talking about exact, exactly what we're going to do, but I want to speak in how, in terms of how do we approach change. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we have all sussed that we are in a massive change, not just in terms of church, but in terms of society. Yeah. We are seeing one of the biggest shifts we have seen, I'd probably say for 50 years or more, maybe since the last world war, we are now in one of the biggest shifts of society um, that is coming. Some of that you can see by looking around you that we are have much less people coming to church. Uh, and all of these things are part of shifting changes. And God gave me two scriptures to do with change that I'm going to talk about. One, we know the parable of the wineskins. The other is probably less well known, but it's about the new temple that was built in Ezra's day. I believe that both of these, uh, one parable, one bit of history, have a really strong bearing about how we deal with transition. Uh, let me start with the new and old wineskins. Uh, this parable, you know, if something is recorded in more of the Gospels, it tends to be more important. If it's mentioned once in one Gospel, it doesn't mean it's not important, but for something to be emphasised, it's important. And this particular parable is mentioned in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, Luke's Gospel gives the fullest meaning of the parable. It's a lot longer than Matthew and Mark. Matthew's version includes everything that is in Mark's version, but it has one addition that we don't find in Mark. And so we're going to be reading Luke and Mark's version of the parable on the wineskins. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of context to the parable. So Jesus gives the parable because he's being compared to John the Baptist. He's also being compared to the way the Pharisees do things because people have said, well, um, John the Baptist's disciples, well, they pray and fast and the Pharisees pray and fast, but your guys don't seem to be doing any of that. And so Jesus is addressing this. Jesus is different. We know that his message was also different. And yet his message is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Pharisees were representative of the Old Testament law. 
And there was a kind of clash continually between the Pharisees and Jesus. And yet Jesus's message wasn't different. But Jesus was bringing change. Jesus was saying, we need to reinterpret what the Pharisees have done, because what they've done is ended up with the wrong result. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, which means Jesus was never against the Old Testament law. But he was not for the law in the way it was being worked out by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was bringing a new and a fuller meaning to the law. And so Jesus was bringing a change into how it was going to be outworked. And just at that point is where we sit. We sit in a time in history where things are changing, where church is going to change. And I know I've said this and you'll, you'll be sick of me saying it, but when it happens, as it transitions, you'll say, ah, that's what Simon said, church is going to change. And I'm not on about Hope Church, although will it include us. I believe church globally is going to change completely. I do not believe as we are now, we are going to be in 10 years time. We're gonna see a shift in things changing. So our context is similar. That the Jews had been used to a certain way that the Jewish religion had been done. And the Pharisees were the keeper of all that. And then Jesus comes, who says, I've come to fulfill the law. I've not come to abolish the law. And yet, there is change. Something has got to change. And we're moving into new days. God is working differently. And there is a change in how things are going to be done in the future and Jesus addresses, what does he address? He actually addresses our attitude. Jesus in this parable is telling us some fixed things, but he is focusing on our attitude. Let me, let me make um, a brief aside. Jesus' statement of change didn't change the truth. Yeah, Jesus wasn't bringing new moral values. He wasn't bringing a compromise to Old Testament values. So we need to make really sure that that's not what we're doing. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because there is a lot of deconstruction going on. If you don't know what that word means, it's about getting rid of the old values and replacing them with something else. And Jesus wasn't doing that. I'm really clear. Jesus didn't abolish the law. He didn't say what it said it was wrong. What he did say is the way you're out working it is not the way that God intended. And so Jesus's truth is still our truth. As church changes, we will know those churches that are wrong because they will change the moral values that Jesus gave to us. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about how are we going to approach things that change that we are used to in our church tradition? Let me read the parable to you. This is Luke chapter 5, verse 36 to 39. I'm reading from the anglicised NIV. Hey, did you know there is an anglicised NIV, which means it's for us good old Brits. We don't have to spell colour without a U in it. He told them this parable. 
Now, remember, he told them this parable because they were saying that his disciples weren't doing what the Pharisees and John the Baptist was doing. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, what he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. And then in Matthew 9, verse 16 to 17, we have this parable repeated, but there are a few differences. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. If we looked at an overview here, we would say that Jesus is saying that the old and the new are not compatible. If we kind of just took it at a simple overview, we would say the new and the old are always going to clash. And in some ways we experience that. Where people say, oh, but in my day we used to do it like this. However, on cr closer scrutiny, we find that Jesus is not saying it's incompatible, but he is saying there are some challenges that we need to address here. What are the challenges? Actually, it's one single challenge. And the challenge is this, how do we deal with change? Most people do not like change. How many of you like change? Okay, few of you, that's really good. Most people don't like it. They like to drive to work the same route every day. And if there is a temporary traffic light, having to change causes stress. You know, one of the ironies is that, that if you look at most of humanity's life, we will eat the same food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for most of our days. Where do we get that from? What our parents ate. You know, there are things we do because we don't like the change. I always remember hearing a story of a, a lady who was cooking the Christmas turkey and what she would do is she would slice a bit off the end and put it in another tray underneath. And her daughter looked at it and said, Mom, why do you do that? She goes, I don't know, my mum did it. So she calls her, Mom, why did you slice that off the end and put it in another tray? She says, well, we had a small oven. And you immediately see how something can become a tradition. You know, isn't it interesting that what we do as parents becomes a tradition for our children? But this is how we always do it. Well, we're doing something different. No! I find it really amazing. We resist change. Jesus made this comment that those who have tasted the old wine like the new wine better, like the old wine better than the new wine. I mean, there's a, a real classic there, isn't it? Well, it's not as good as the old Coke. 
You know, when you get the new Coke that's zero and that's this or the other or the new this, well, it's not as good as the old one was. And we've heard that and we've probably made it. I've made that statement. Man, the old cars were built better than the new cars. I've made that statement. The old is best. And the parable highlights that when change comes, when people come into our lives who want to do something new, conflict ensues. Now, the image that Jesus gives is actually very severe. He says that the effect could be that the tear in the garment becomes worse because of the clash. He says that the wineskins can be ruined as well as the wine if we're not careful. Now, now those are kind of we've lost everything scenarios. I mean, if you're trying to fix a tear in a garment and the tear becomes worse, you have to chuck the garment away. If the wineskins burst, you can't enjoy the wine and the wineskins can no longer be used. It goes in the bin. So he's making an all or nothing statement here. It is a severe problem. In the end, Jesus says that both the garment and the wineskins are ruined if we don't understand the challenges that we have to face. And yet, Jesus gives a solution. He says, firstly, let's keep these things separate. Now, we don't like that. He's saying, let's keep it separate. New wine into new wineskins, old wine and old wineskins. If you're going to repair a patch on an old garment, you have to use an old cloth that has been washed because, I mean, you understand why it tears away. Because it, it used to be, it's not so much now, but when you wash something the first time, it shrinks. So if you get a new piece of cloth and you put it on a tear and then you wash it, it will shrink and it will tear the cloth again. So you have to use something that is as old as the cloth that you're using. How do we keep things separate without conflict? How do we live together in a church where some of us have been part of the old, some of us are part of the new, without there being a conflict? Jesus is very clear. He says new wine needs to go into new wineskins. Now, I believe that Christ can make an old wineskin a new wineskin. But I think the attitude of the old wineskin needs to be open to change. If you're not open to change, then you're always going to kick against the new things that are coming. One of the things that Jesus is very clear about, he says, if you put the new wine into an old wineskin, it's going to destroy everything. So what's he saying here? He is saying that if we try to take the new thing and force it into our old traditions, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Now, I've been part of church for 30, 40 years. And I've seen a lot of change in that time. When I first went to church, all you ladies had lovely hats or doilies on your head. Yeah, it's no longer there. When I first went, man, you had to wear a suit. Yeah, I remember when I was 18, I bought my first suit because I was going to church. If 
you didn't come with a suit, you were in trouble. If you were doing anything on the platform and you were dressed like this, man, were you were in trouble. We've seen some changes. And, and even today, there are some people who say, well, you know, it's not church unless it's this. If we didn't have preaching this morning, if we, if we just sat around tables and we chatted about God, is that church? Some people say, no, that's not church. We didn't have the preaching of the word. We've got to be really careful that we don't try to force things into the old way of doing things because it's never going to work. It's never going to work. Let me ask you a question. Are you an old wineskin or a new wineskin? How can you know? Well, how do you react to change? Every time something is changed in church, what comes out of your mouth? Is it, well, that's not how we used to do it? Or are you saying, you know what, this could work? Now, it seems that I'm saying the onus is on the old wineskins. And to some degree, that's true because there is more maturity in the old wineskins. And that's why the danger is greater. But there's also responsibility on the new wineskins that they don't move too fast. You know, one of the things I've noticed about change is that quite often as a leadership team, we are aware of it well before we say something in church because we've got to talk it through, we've got to pray it through, we've got to plan it through, and then we can start to share with the church, this is what we're thinking, but it takes people different amounts of time to process and do it. And we've got to be really careful on both ends, whether we're the old wineskin or the new wineskin, that we're not causing a kind of conflict between the two. The, the, the parable highlights this amazing objective. At the very end it says, and both are preserved. Did you know it is possible to have a church that has old wineskins and new wineskins and they work well together? How does that happen? Well, it happens when we understand it's not about the kind of methods that we use or the traditions that we have, but it's about the presence of God being in what we're doing. I mean, otherwise we're in trouble, aren't we? Well, one of the great challenges of something like Islam is that Islam forces people to live a 7th century life because everything was written at that point and they are not, not allowed to change one jot and tittle of what was written. And so that's why people live in that vein. Christianity is not like that. Because we have a living God, we have a God who sees and understands. And to be quite frank with you, I don't believe God really cares what you're dressed like. As long as it's kind of clean and respectable, and by respectable I don't mean a shirt and tie, but that you're covering up your body in a way that you should. But over the years, some of these things have been a challenge. I know when I was younger, it was a big thing. You should only read this Bible. This is the, the, the one that God says. Now we've got like 25 translations, and some people are saying, well, apart from this one, these are all from the devil. You've got to be really careful. That's old wineskin talk. I'm saying these things because we are going to face change and how we come towards it 
will have a massive, massive impact. The conclusion to this parable is that we have to love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. We need to embrace the changes that God is bringing. We will see that when we get to this second uh, story about the temples. We need to ensure that we are not holding back the new. You know, if all we see are the old wineskins and God gives us new wine, where do we put the new wine? We can't put it in the old wineskins because they'll burst. Where do we put it? And it leaves us in a stagnant position where nothing can change because we've got the new wine hanging about here. The old wineskin saying you need to put it in there with the knowledge that it's not going to work. We need to make sure that we are taking time to help people understand change. It's what we're trying to do as a leadership. That we love one another. And all we need to recognise within this is that if we look throughout church history, in every generation God has done it differently. Now, the second story I want to mention, or not a parable, but a story, comes from Ezra chapter 3. If you remember, the first temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, was built by Solomon. Now, Solomon's temple was phenomenal, and I mean phenomenal. King David, in all of his victories, had reserved all of the gold, silver, bronze, wood, everything he got. He had piled it up because he wanted to build a temple. And God says, you can't, it's for your son. And his son, who comes with great wisdom, gets even more. So the provision of creating this new temple is amazing. And I tell you, this new temple was amazing. It took them seven years to build, and it was a piece of glory. It was, was inside. It was all covered in gold. It had cypress wood and olive wood. It had specially dressed stones. I mean, it was an amazing thing. The problem was that the people did not honour the God of that temple. And in the end, it was destroyed. Not a stone was left. It was destroyed. And we, we pick up the story so what happens is the temple was destroyed. The Israelites were deported by Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken off to Babylon. Um, but God says, I'm going to bring them back. And so in Ezra's day, God takes the king and he releases the people. They come back and we've got Ezra, we've got Nehemiah, and they come back to Jerusalem. It's all been burnt. Nehemiah gets on about building the wall around. But Ezra's focus is about we need the temple back. And so here we pick it up in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, and with trumpets, and the Levites, and the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now we could stop there and say, isn't that amazing? God has brought back his temple. But then it goes on in verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads 
who had seen the former temple, that Solomon's temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, and while many others were shouting for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So you've got this scenario that they've laid the foundation, but there are a lot of people there who were around when Solomon's temple's there and they look at it and go, what is that? And they start weeping. But the new people who had not seen it, the new generation, look at it and say, hallelujah, God's temple is back. And you've got weeping and you've got celebration all occurring at the same time. Can you see how this is very similar to the parable of the wineskin? You've got the new and you've got the old. The old temple was a grand building. The new temple was built when they were still in servitude and they didn't have all the resources for a start. They didn't have all the gold. That's all been taken. They hadn't got any of those things. They couldn't even build it if they wanted it to, to that size. And so those who had seen the old wept and those who hadn't seen it saw the new and they rejoiced. And here again, we've got the old and new kind of hitting together. What do we learn here? The reality is that the God of Israel is not dependent on the size of the temple. When you think about it, it's got nothing really to do with the practicality of the temple. Whether the temple is this big or that big, whether it's full of gold or not, whether it's got gems on it, whether the doors are lovely, it doesn't actually matter, does it really? What matters is that God is there. And you've got to remember, as much as God allowed the building of Solomon's temple, it was God who ordered the building of the second temple. God was in both. He was in the temple that was full of glory and everything. And Solomon's temple, when it was dedicated, God came down in a cloud of glory and they couldn't minister. None of that happened with the second temple. Does that mean it wasn't God's temple? Of course not. It was because God said, this is what I want happening. And we are so often caught up, but that's how it happened. The Welsh revival. We want to see the same as the Welsh revival. What if God says, I'm doing something new, guys? I'd love to see it. I'd love to see a Welsh revival here in the UK. Problem is, if you read about the history of revivals, after they were gone, it very quickly dissipated. The temple was never about the size and grandeur of the building. It was about the faithfulness of the people to God. Our church is not this building. Our church is us here together, us sitting here. And whether we are 120 people or like this morning, maybe 50 people, it doesn't make any difference how big it is. We are the people of God. And if 12 men, or should we say 11, because Judas kind of fluffed it up, if 11 men chosen by Jesus can change the known world and can pass on the gospel generation after generation so that we can sit here, then 50 of us is amazing. The irony 
is that the great temple was destroyed because of the faithlessness of the people. They didn't remain true to God. We need to be faithful in every generation. What challenges me is that something has been passed on to us. Hope Church has been here for 90 years or so. And that means that we've had two to three generations that have gone before us and passed something on. And I say to some of you younger folks, those of you who are my age and younger, 50 and younger, we've had something passed on. I was looking through my records recently. You know, in the last 11 years, we have buried some 20 or so of our congregants. Previous generations who had served faithfully. John Toy and the Perrys and, you know, there's a whole list of these people, Tyra and, and so on, folks who served God in their generation and handed the baton on to us. But here's the good news. God doesn't say you got to do it the way they did. He says, you run the way I ask you to run. You build the way I ask you to build. And those of us who are part of the generation that saw the old, and we might say, well, we really enjoyed that. That was really good. And God says, that's great, but there's some new wine coming and it's going to taste different. And it's not going to fit in the same mold that we've had. Every generation has to deal with change. Sometimes the change will be small, at other times the change is severe. I believe we're coming to a severe change. However, God is the God who is always faithful to his promises, no matter what changes around us. What does that mean? That means that God's methods may change, but he does not. Maybe the time of, the, of Billy Graham and Reinhard Bonnke is finished. And not that that's a bad thing. Maybe it's a time of the scattering of the people and they begin to share within their community rather than having one person stand there and preach to thousands. One thing is clear. We don't compromise with the world and we look to God constantly. We hold on to nothing. When I started in ministry, a guy said to me, Simon, let me explain to you how you hold on to ministries. You hold on to ministry like you would hold a live bird. Not so tightly that you kill it, and not so loosely that it flies away. You just gotta hold it right. And I've taken that on board in what I do. I love this church, I love the people in the church, but at the same time, it's not my church. It's God's church, it belongs to Jesus. We together are the church, we are the body of Christ. It's one of the reasons that if people move on to somewhere else, if God calls them, I'm not phased by that. Because it's Jesus moving around his people. They're not my people. We look to God. The Pharisees refused to change and the result was they crucified Christ. Isn't that, I mean, just think about that for a moment. Just think about it for a moment. I mean, it blows my mind. 
The very people who were given the Old Testament law, who were waiting for the coming Messiah, who had all the promises, they knew it all, but they wouldn't change. When Jesus came, they nailed him to a cross. I mean, it just, I can't even comprehend it. We kind of think persecution comes from the devil and it comes from those who don't know God. Let me tell you, 99% of the persecution I've seen comes from those who once followed Christ. And even Jesus says that. A mother against daughter and daughter against mother-in-law and father against son. These things are around. The Pharisees, wow. So does it matter what programs we run? Does it matter where we meet? Does it matter if we have a building or not? The answer is that none of those things stop the church throughout its long history. What mattered were that the people were in tune with God. What mattered were that people were saying, you know what, I need to hear what God wants me to do in this generation. These things should not be an area of contention. One of the great sadnesses, so I have family in Germany, but in Germany, the law is a bit more draconian than here. And there is a massive split occurring in churches over the vaccine. People are saying, you shouldn't be coming to church if you haven't been vaccinated. And it's causing a split. Let me tell you, those things should never cause a split. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, now here's a, let me talk just one moment about the vaccine. So I'm fully vaccinated. My mum hasn't had any vaccine. She thinks it's wrong. And we've had a conversation. We have lots of conversations. We've had a conversation. And I said to my mother simply this. I said, listen, I have no problem in you not having the vaccine. If you've got faith, if you felt God say to you, you shouldn't take the vaccine, I have no problem. He says, but I have faith that in taking the vaccine, God will work through that as well. We both have faith in that. So therefore, there should be no conflict here. I'm not trying to squeeze you into my mold, and, and I'm not expecting you to squeeze me into your mold. We operate in terms of faith. Our call is to love one another. That's the call. We love one another and we are obedient to what Jesus has told us to do. And let me tell you, I can say this with a 100% certainty, the tools and the methods we use will change. 10 years ago, I wouldn't be using this. 10 years ago, people wouldn't be getting their phones out and looking at the Bible. You know, I'm, I'm amazed. On my little phone, I've got something like 50 Bibles. Did you know that? I've got the original Greek. I can see the re I can click on a word and it gives me the meaning and I can look at a comment. You can do it all on my smartphone. I mean, you know, I think smartphones are very dangerous in terms of the attention and distraction they bring. But I also think it's amazing. I can go anywhere. So that's somebody calling. I can go anywhere with a smartphone, I've got a whole slew of things. Stuff that not even the great Martin Luther had, you know, that these guys, you know, C.H. Spurgeon, man, he hasn't got a library like I have, but you know, it's not dependent on those things. It's dependent on God and the tools and the methods will change.
but God does not change. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Let's be open to what God is going to do. And it doesn't mean we, we want to change things for change's sake, but I think God is changing things. I did not want to do online church for a year and a half, but actually we had to do it because God closed the door to us being in here. Who knows what the future holds? And out of all of it, God is speaking to us. But what matters the most is that we love one another and that we say, and you know, even if we look and say, you know what, I can't quite be part of this new thing, that is not a problem. You know, one of the things that's always a challenge is that when we look at the new things God is doing, that quite often those who served in the previous generation, it's time for them to sit back. But as they sit back, the responsibility is to encourage. Say, look, I, I can't do that, but you can go for it. See God work through it. See God touch people through it. And I think we're going to see some amazing things. Who knows what God is going to do? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning. We thank you that you are God and there is no other. And Father, I pray for us as the people of God that you have brought us together. We are not here together by chance. We are here because you have called us. And Father, we, we confess and we say before you, we want to see more. We want to see more of your power and your glory we want to see more of you working through us and in us. We want to see more of you working within our community. And Father, we say this morning, here we are. And Father, we lay, we, we lay no restriction on you. We don't say to you, you've got to do it this way or that way. We ask that you in your great, amazing wisdom explain to us what you want us to do. You say the word and we will do it. And so Father, we commit ourselves to you. We are the people of God. We commit ourselves to loving one another, for looking, and looking after one another. And we ask that you would lead us, that you would guide us, and that we would see the fruit that you've promised we would see in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.